welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 21 in the series, Contending for the Faith. This is the evening service of Sunday the 25th of October 2009, entitled The Fundamentals, His Visible Return, Part 6, and the Bible reading is taken from Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Revelation chapter 15. I told Penos earlier when I was talking about the fact that to carrying on with this message tonight from this morning, which is not, I normally have tried to stick with this series on the Sunday mornings, but I really wanted to finish at least the tribulation period, since we're going to be uh, not here next week and uh, leave off part way through it. And he figures probably about 10 o'clock tonight should just about do it, but uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, but uh, no, we're, uh, we'll look quickly, but uh, as I said this morning, as we look here, uh, we could spend so much time on so many of these details, but what I want you to grasp is the fact that uh, for us as a church here at Bethel, and I will, as we come to the end of this, probably in a couple of weeks on his return, I'll read you the statement from our statement of faith that we put out, but uh, it's very important to us as a fellowship that we believe not only in the literal visible, bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we look at the prophecy from Scripture, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, in a premillennial return of Christ to this earth to set up His thousand-year kingdom reign here upon this earth, when at the end of that, uh, finally, uh, we will see a new heaven and a new earth and all of eternity with our Lord uh, in His kingdom. But as we look here this evening, we're going to jump ahead to uh, chapter 15. If you've uh, uh, got your uh, charts there, we'll uh, turn to them in, in, in just a moment. But let me invite you to, to stand to honor the reading of God's Word, beginning in Revelation chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints." Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let us pray. Father, we thank You again for Your goodness this evening. We thank You, Lord, for each one. Lord, we know that many are here this evening that are tired in body and tired physically. 
But Lord, we thank you that they have honored because you tell us not to forsake together the assembling of ourselves together. And Lord, we realize that though tired physically, that Lord, coming together here this evening, that, that Lord, that each one would hopefully gain a, a blessing and be uplifted spiritually. And Lord, we know that you honor that because if we're honest and true, Lord, we realize that for all the goodness and all the grace and all the love that you show us, Lord, our time spent together in worshiping you and praising you is very minimal indeed. We thank you for this time again this evening. We pray now that as we look into your word, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd help each one to gain something this evening, Lord, that would be a benefit to them eternally. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, for anybody that doesn't have the, uh, the charts that we, uh, that we had up uh, this morning, there are some copies here. If maybe the stewards would like to grab them, there's the time chart and the study guide through the book of Revelation. And again, it's just to, uh, just to be an overall picture to hopefully uh, help you to uh, understand exactly what it is that, uh, uh, that we're looking at here. And of course, on your uh, time charts, if you have those, we're talking about that, that red period on there, that seven years of tribulation that uh, we want to, uh, to be uh, uh, looking at. And we saw this morning, as we looked there, we saw that during the time that uh, the saints are in heaven with the Lord, that there uh, came a point when those seals would be opened there. And of course, we saw those seven seals that were opened, and that seventh seal of course, brought forth seven trumpets. And all of these, of course, are judgments of God that are coming against the uh, nations here. And uh, the timeline is just to give you an idea. And then hopefully uh, the other one, if you've got that, is what we'll be looking at this evening, which is the actual uh, study chart on the uh, book of Revelation. And uh, we finished up there in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19 this morning which, of course, was the announcement that seventh trumpet of Christ's kingdom and his eternal reign. The victory is ours with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice there that uh, uh, the next section, number four on your study chart, is, is seven personages. And, of course, this is dealing with chapters 12 through chapters 14 in the book of Revelation. And we see a number of things there that's dealing with the nation of Israel and with Satan coming against them. Uh, with the Christ child that came forth from them, Michael the archangel. We see at the close of chapter 12 this Jewish remnant that uh, uh, would be true to the Lord. And then in chapter 13, we see the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth that, uh, that rise up from that. In chapter 14 then, we uh, again remember that I said this morning that uh, we've just divided this, this study guide into seven sevens to make it simple, not because there's anything magical about that. Somebody else may have come up with a, a, a better idea. It really is just to uh, help you to be able to look at it and picture what's going on. But in chapter 14, of course, it opens with talking about the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see there the 144,000 that we uh, mentioned this morning, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that will be evangelists, that will be going forth, uh, declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we see the three angels and the vision of Armageddon and what is going to be taking place at that great battle which again, if you look on your time chart, comes right at the end of the seven years of tribulation. But what I want to call your attention to is again, as we have begun here in chapter 15, and we see that chapter 15 is really 
an introduction to another seven judgments that are being brought against the earth during this time. And remember, now thank God if you're a child of God, you're not going to be present here upon the earth for these things. But by the same token, we said that it ought to challenge our hearts because our friends, our family, those that we know, the people that live next door to us, the people that work beside us, if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and if they're still living when that trumpet sounds and our Lord returns and calls His church out of here, they will be present for all that we see here. And it's hard for our imagination to even comprehend all that's going on. But we see here in chapter 15 that there's these seven angels again and there are seven vials. And of course the Bible tells us in verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now I want you to notice, first of all, it tells us in, in chapter 16, in verse 1, and I heard a great voice out of the temple. See, remember, no one is allowed to be in there, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And of course, a vial was simply a, a bowl, a bowl of wrath, if you would, that would be poured out upon the earth. And we look, and if you see on your chart in, in verse 2, we see the first of those vials being poured out upon this earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Now I appreciate there was some of the young people came and had some questions after the sermon this morning. And of course it's interesting that as we, one of the things I pointed out that as we look at a lot of these judgments that are being brought against the unbelievers upon this earth at this time, we see that those that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in many cases where it's possible they are not part of that. They are protected from those things. And notice here that it says that the vial is being poured out upon those which had the mark of the beast, upon them that worship the image rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So the judgment is not being brought against God's people that might be here upon this earth at this time, but for those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first vial that comes forth, basically all those unbelievers upon this earth, the Bible says that there is these sores that is going to uh, come out upon their body and uh, uh, that says noisome and, and grievous, which, which literally speaks of something being very foul and loathsome, whatever that these, these sores, these bowls might be that is going to be poured out upon them. And then, of course, notice in the next verse, and the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. When this second vial of judgment is poured out upon the earth. We see that the actual waters of the sea, the Bible says, are turned to blood and it destroys every living creature that is in the sea so there will be no more life. Remember, we already saw where a third of them were destroyed before. But here, the remainder of all the sea life will be destroyed at that point. And then notice in verses 4 through 7, he says, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters and they became blood. The fountains, the springs of water. He's talking about the, the drinking water here. Now the fresh water upon the earth. He says, And I heard the angel of the Lord say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged us. 
And, for, and they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. We find that the Bible is literally saying to them, and I heard another out of the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. You see, these are the ones that have spilt the blood of the saints. Remember we said this morning that if you happen to be one of those that come to saving faith, because there'll be no, no saved people left at the beginning of this seven years of tribulation, the church will be taken out of here. But there will be people that will come to accept Christ during that time. And I'll show you later on in the scriptures why that I believe that those that do so will be those that have not heard the gospel, not those that have heard it and rejected it already and said no. We find that because of the blood that they have shared, have shed, of the saints, that all of the, the rivers and the fountains, the fresh drinking water of this earth is going to be turned to blood. Remember, last time we saw a third of it already poisoned when the stars fell from heaven. Now notice what he tells us in the next two verses. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Now what happened to the sun last time when the trumpet sounded? A third of it was put out. But here instead it's getting hotter. And he shows us here in this fact that men are literally going to be scorched with the fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. So for every bad thing that you've ever said about anybody that was trying to push global warming, take it back. Global warming is really going to be a reality, but it's not going to be in the hands of man. It's going to come about like nobody can even begin to imagine. It's not going to be just a matter of a few degrees, but the truth is that the sun is going to heat up and men are literally going to have their skin scorched because the sun is that hot. Now, notice what happens in verse 10 and 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Does this sound familiar? You remember when God brought the plagues against the children of Israel, against Egypt, uh, when they had the children of Israel held captive? They didn't repent, did they? Here we find that God again, is making himself very well known. And yet rather than repenting of what they have done, the Bible says that they turn and they curse God. So we find that we go from great scorching heat from the sun to darkness and people being in pain to such a degree that it says that literally that they are gnawing um, themselves. We find that to gnawing their tongues because they're in such pain. Now, Look into verse 12, if you would. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And, of course, we'll see later why that that is, is, is so important. But that, that, uh, that vial is, is opened up. And then we find that uh, as we move into verses 13 through 16, we see something here, this sort of a parenthetic phrase in between these vials. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now remember, the dragon is Satan himself. That was one of the things that we, we saw back in, in, in chapter, uh, chapter 12. 
And of course, out of the mouth of the beast and, and, and the false prophet, all these are the satanic power. And here are these three demonic figures that, that come out that look like frogs, the Bible says. For they are the spirits of devils, literally demons, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. We find that the truth is, is that we were pondering this afternoon. It's hard to comprehend and imagine sometimes how that people can be so lame that with all of God's power being shown forth, they still think somehow they can get the upper hand, that they can defeat him in some way. We find these, these three demon forces come forth that look like frogs that are able to, to gather together these forces because they, they still have the audacity after of all of this to think that somehow that they're going to be able to defeat the Lord. Now notice what it, what it says, picking up in verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now on your study chart, I simply called it earthquake and hell, geographical catastrophe. The fact is, the Bible says this earth has never seen an earthquake like God is going to shake this earth at that time. And yet, still, at the end of God showing forth such great power, men stand and curse God rather than repenting of their sins and turning to him and believing him. We find that these vials are all going to be opened, and then we find that something spectacular is going to happen in chapter 17 of your Bibles there. And beginning in chapter 17 and reading right through to, to chapter the end of chapter 18, both of these chapters, we read about the fall of Babylon. Now, how many of you have read some books on prophecy before? And how many different things have you seen that people try to describe and predict just what Babylon is in the Scriptures? And the truth is, is that at different times in history, men have been convinced of different things that they were sure that Babylon was. And of course, what I would simply say to you is that there is absolutely no doubt as we look around that we even today, I mean, some people think that it's going to be the Roman Catholic Church. Some people think that it's going to be the United States of America. Some people think all kinds of things that they think Babylon is going to be. But remember, at this point, we're, there's not going to be all of this division of the churches like we have now. There's going to be a one world church. There's going to be a false prophet that is leading these people religiously. 
And the truth is, is that I believe that probably most of these people are right to a degree and that Babylon is probably all of these that make up this, this religious system that is not what the Lord Jesus Christ has given us when he's given us the gospel and he's given us the New Testament church. We find that during all of these years up to this time, during the years of tribulation, this false prophet and the Antichrist, they have been in control they have been leading. And yes, you know, if you're, if you're listening, I mean, it, it might be those that claim to be Christian and those that claim to be Muslim and those that claim to be, to be Buddhist and Sikhs and all the religions that you could list and name out there. They're all going to come together under one head. The only ones that are not going to be a part of it are those that are made so light of today, those that are those born-again Christians because they're going to be out of here. But all of religion is going to be coming together under one head. But we can read and we can understand that during this time, they will lead for a while. But the victory will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Babylon will fall under his wrath. And of course, then we turn to chapter 19. And I've got to read you just a, a, a few verses from there. Because notice in chapter 19, notice what it says in verses 1 through 10. It says, and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Remember, again, we can speculate on who the whore is. And it might be this group or that group or this group or that group, but they're going to all be part of this, this one world religion at this time that's going to be made up of them, and they are going to fall. He says, "...that judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand." She's fallen now. And again they said, Hallelujah. "...and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah." And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now we touched last week on the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's why on your time chart you see there that while this red streak is running across and all the blood is being shed here upon earth during the seven years of tribulation, that in heaven there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course we saw that the judgment seat of Christ would take place. The bride has been made ready and that's the assurance, the confidence that you can have, that you can know this evening, that you're not going to be here. And that you would have that, that burden, that, 
that, that true challenge within your heart to go out and try to make sure that everybody that you know that you possibly can have any part whatsoever that they're at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven rather than spending those seven years of tribulation here upon this earth. You see, they're happening at the same time. One is happening in heaven while the other is taking place here on earth. And there are no human beings anywhere else at that time. All the dead in Christ have risen. Those that remained at his coming, they've been called up together with them to meet them in the air. They've gone through the judgment seat of Christ, and now they're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The only people not present are those that have died without Christ because they haven't been brought out of their graves yet. But at this point in time, I hope that you can have the confidence to know that you're there, that you're with him. But notice, notice what happens in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen and white and clean. I like that. Brother St. Peter said that was the part that, that scared his grandson Samuel because he didn't like horses. And if he was going to be a Christian, if he was going to have to ride one of those horses when he came back, then he wasn't sure he wanted to be on one of those horses. But we're getting a picture here. You see, we've been in heaven. But now we're coming to a time when all of those born-again saints that have now become the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of his armies are going to come back to this earth with him. And notice that he says, what verse was I in? Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, all this has been happening here upon earth. But at the same time, the bride has been made ready. She's been adorned. And now the Bible teaches us that we're going to return with him to this earth. And of course, when we come back, Notice what's going to happen to those that are left behind. In verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sat on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain, and the sword of him that sat upon the horse, 
which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. I don't even know how you can begin to comprehend. I mean, you know, this term is tossed around a lot. They even made a blockbuster movie here a few years back called Armageddon. It's a term that the world uses a lot of time when they, they, they know what Armageddon means. And, of course, in the valley of Megiddo where this battle is going to take place, that's where it gets its name from. But the truth is, it's going to be something. I mean, we, listen, remember, we have already seen. We've seen battles taking place upon this earth during the seven years of tribulation like nothing that man has ever seen or imagined with all of the horrific things that we've seen in man's capabilities of being able to destroy each other in this world. And yet here, it's going to be all the forces of heaven against all the forces of hell. That's what this battle is going to be. And the, the Bible goes to give us great detail of what this battle is going to be like. The amount of bloodshed that's going to take place when the blood will come up to the, to the bridles of the horses and whatnot. But you see, these forces have gathered together. The interesting thing is, people say, well, boy, now this isn't a very heavenly thing if we're going to have to go to heaven and get our glorified bodies and then we're going to get all decked out we're going to come back riding on our horses and then we're going to have to, to get into a, to a battle with all the forces of hell. You know, it's interesting when we read the description there, though. Sister Rifka, we're coming back with him, but there's only one person that it shows in there that's doing the fighting. <laughs> and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> we're with him, but he doesn't need our help to win the battle. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I think that, you know, again, with, with Satan, with all the forces that he can muster, he doesn't stand a chance. As we see that in the end, the Lord himself will be victorious. And of course, just as we saw when that first seal was opened, we saw that these events begin here during the seven years here upon this earth. This is the closing event. If you've got your, your time chart there, which I've got one here somewhere, and all this stack of 30 or 40 pages that I've got up here, that... Uh, if you've got your time chart, you'll see right there, right at that point where it shows the return of Christ to the earth with his church, where that comes together with that earth line down there at the bottom. You see that battle of Armageddon, the beast and the false prophet being judged and cast into the lake of fires. And of course, you see there in verse 21, the remaining of mankind being slain. Now we're going to pick up here the next time when we begin to look, because I'm not even going to start on the millennial kingdom, but that's going to be hopefully our, our final sermon when we look at, at just what is going to happen after this finishes here upon earth. You see, can I just remind you this this evening? All of our brothers and sisters in Christ do not see these events panning out as I'm giving to you this evening. I'm giving them to you as honestly and clearly. That's why I've gone to the trouble to try to put it on the charts for you, to try to take the Scriptures and show you if you take the Scriptures in a clear, literal sense, this is the way that they're going to take place. Now, I'll have to face God with that one day. There are those out there that I believe are just as saved as you and I are, and they believe that the Lord's coming back, but they don't believe that He's coming back to set up a literal kingdom here upon this earth. 
Many of them believe all kinds of things about whether the tribulation is already passed and many believe that we're already in the millennial reign as I said this morning and all kinds of things and that's between them and God. And they'll give an answer for those things. And the thing is, I want us to understand, you cannot, you cannot, well, you can claim, but you cannot be a part of the same faith that we are if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, what point would it do to be a Christian if Jesus Christ isn't going to come back for the saints, for his church? We must believe that he's coming back. We must believe that he's coming back to get us, to take us with him. That was the whole point when he was leaving his, his apostles there the first time. And in, and in John chapter 14 when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Do you believe that he would have been honest with us? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He said, I'm going away for a while. But don't worry. I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm coming again. Now listen, we daren't ever add or take away anything from the gospel Man is saved by the grace of God and he's saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone. And he can be wrong about a lot of other things. But I'm talking about the faith, the true faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that we're to contend for, that we're to fight for, that it is very important to our faith. Not because you have to understand that to become a Christian, but if you're going to be a part of the faith, of the truth, that was once for all delivered to us. You've got to believe he's coming again. You've got to believe that. The timing and all, I've said before, with a smiling face, you can be wrong if you want to. <laughs> the truth is, if we accept it literally, we see these events taking place. We see them happening, what's happening here on earth, what's happening in heaven. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is in two stages. Now this is the thing. There are many others out there that are not heretics, that are just as saved as we are, that may not see it this way. But it's very important. It's important enough that we place it in our statement of faith, which I told you we come to the end of this. I will read it to you exactly how we put it there because it's important to us as a local body of believers. Some churches just simply don't even say whether they believe in a amillennial, amillennial, whichever way you want to pronounce it, or a premillennial that they just believe that the Lord's coming back. And that's fine. I told you in the beginning, they're trying to keep from being divisive. But the truth is, I don't know how to take God's word and to preach the whole counsel of God with you without either believing that it's literal or that it's somehow symbolic. It touches on everything that we believe when we start teaching from, from the Old Testament books like Isaiah and Daniel and those prophetic books that, that tell us about things to come. When we look at the book of Revelation as we've just glanced at today, we've got to teach it in some way or another. And it's important, not because we place ourselves on a pedestal above them, but if we're going to be in one heart and one mind and one accord, I don't want you to take these things and take them farther than we should. We're not saying that they're all heretics because they don't believe the way we do. But we're saying that if you're going to be in unity and fellowship with this local church, that we take it literal and we believe it's happening. And if you were to be here and to be a part of this church and believe otherwise, you'd probably be pretty unhappy, well, even more unhappy than some people already are with my preaching a lot of times. 
Because that's where we're going to preach from. And I think it's vital and important. And for you as a child of God, to take God's word. I said this morning, the book of Revelation is not given to you to confuse you. Some people say, oh, I can't, I can't understand all of that stuff. Yes, there's a lot of symbolism there. Again, I shared with the young people this morning, there's all kinds of things which some of you that were here when we went through it verse by verse will know, yes, there's, there's things to the colors and the symbols and all these things that, again, it just, it just reinforces God's order right the way through the word of God. But as we begin to look at them, what we're trying to see, I want you to realize and understand, first of all, why you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. And you should have some kind of an event. Why did God give us so much of his Bible telling us about what events are going to do? But I said this this morning, and I'll say it to you again this evening. Prophecy, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it for a Christian it should fill your heart with joy when you think about being away from sin and being in heaven and all that's going to take place there. It should excite you. It should lift you up when you know that one day, I don't care how bad your problems are. I don't care how tough that it's getting for you. There's a better world and it's been promised to us and Jesus is coming again for us, praise God. But Christians, I tell you something else. It should challenge our hearts like probably nothing else that we can read, when we begin to grasp and believe and live like we really believe these things are going to happen and like we really believe that it could start today. Let me ask you this. If it was not a secret, you know, I guess a lot of preachers have preached it in different ways, shape, or form, and I preached a sermon here a, a few years back, you know, and, and, and I just simply entitled it, If You Had But Twelve Hours to Live. You know, the, the whole thought is, if you knew that you had this much time left to spend upon this earth, and that was it, how would you spend it? What would be the most important thing for you to do? I'm saying this, if we live our lives like we really believe what we're looking at today, if we really believe that Jesus could come back before this service comes to a close, if he could come back tomorrow, if he was going, if you knew that he was coming back before this week came to a close, how would you live your life different this week? Then if you just go on like usual, just be honest. Oh, it's a passing thought. Yeah, you believe that he's coming. But none of us really live our lives very often like we really believe he's coming. But yet, if we accept the word of God as we do, if we believe these things literally as we do, it could happen. I tell you once again, there is absolutely, I cannot find one prophecy in the word of God that must be fulfilled before that trumpet sounds and Jesus Christ calls his church out of here. Not one. Yes, there's other prophecies to be fulfilled. But nothing that cannot be fulfilled during the seven years of tribulation after the church has been called out of here, after the second coming has already begun in its first stage. Do we really live our lives like we believe that on the one hand, whew, some of those big, big, big monstrous problems we got, they suddenly aren't so big anymore. They suddenly don't matter so much if we knew that our Lord was coming back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, pick a date. You know, the truth is, if we knew it was going to happen a year from now or five years from now, if we really knew it, I believe it would change the way that we live today. It ought to affect our lives. We let so many things, 
So many things get in the way. Take our energies, take our life, take our time, and we're all guilty of it. It ought to challenge us to a new way of life. It ought to challenge us. It ought to challenge us to live our lives to where if the trumpet sounds right now, I don't have to worry about getting down on my knees and saying I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that because I don't want to face them with that sin that I haven't got right in my life, that sin that I've continued with. It ought to affect our lives. A lot of things ought to affect our lives, but you know what? We've still got a sinful flesh. Paul struggled with it. I sure struggle with it. And all the glory of one day, not having to worry with it anymore. We can look forward to that. But I'm saying to you folks, I want you to know what you believe. And I want you to know why you believe it. But you know, God didn't give us these things just so we could go around impressing people by quoting them the scriptures and drawing timelines and showing people, you know, what we think about these things or what we think that we know about these things. He gave them to them to change our lives, to affect our lives. The word of God is there for a purpose. Not just so we can show off how much of it we know, but to affect the way that we live our lives, first of all and above all, to bring us to repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to rise up new people that are living a different kind of life that the Word of God shapes and forms our lives as to who we are. Do we really believe it? What's it going to take for us to live like it? To live our lives in a way with all the battles we have. You know, at least the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, at least when it come down to it, and he knew he was approaching the end for him, but Peter, he knew he'd fought a good fight. He knew that he had kept the faith. He knew that he had finished his course. And he knew that there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness. But he went on to say, but not, for him only, <laughs> but for each and every one of you here tonight. I know you've got struggles, but I still believe that we can live a life such that we can know, that we can genuinely know that he's the priority. You know, if you really self-examine yourself, you know what's really important to you. You know what the priorities are in your life. You know how much it really means, the kind of life you live, the words that you breathe, the things that you do, the places that you go, the thoughts that you have, all these things. How much does Christ have as a part of all those things? And you really know. You really know whether or not that you're doing everything in your power that Christ, because if your lost friends and family are going to see Christ, I don't care how much they don't deserve it. I don't care what they've said to you about your faith. I've asked you many times before when it comes to witnessing, how many of you would have been brave enough to go up and look the Apostle Paul, old Saul of Tarsus, in the eyeball and said, are you a Christian? <laughs> Do you know that you're saved knowing that he had the power of your life and death in his hands for the sheer faith that you're trying to present to him? And yet, God prepared that heart. <laughs> Sometimes those that are the greatest enemies become the greatest warriors for him. We know. And I've said time and time again, you know, my desire, my heart's desire is your pastor is in loving you 
and seeing you built up in the faith to where we're not just another clubhouse to come together for religious purposes. Some people once a week, some people twice, some people three times. But the truth is that we are the body of Christ. Ah, that's another message. <laughs> are you really part of the body? Do you come along to church just when you feel like it, when you think it can do something for you? Or are we actively part of the body trying to accomplish something for him? You see, you're important. And if you're part of the body, I mean, if you had this evening, okay, if there's parts of your body that you don't need, what are you going to start with? You're going to whack off a little finger or a big thumb or a, or a foot or maybe pluck out an eyeball? You know, what part of the body do you not want? If we make up one body, it takes all of it together to function as a body. And yet I say this not meanly, but look around even at the empty seats here tonight. Where is everybody? How important is it to them? Do you have to be in church to be a Christian? No, but if you're a Christian, I believe you'll want to be in church. Not for what it can do for you, not for how good it can make you feel, but for what you can do for him. He deserves the worship. He deserves the honor. He does. But what takes his place? Oh, I don't have to be there to worship. That's fine. It's a funny thing. If you look through the Word of God right from the beginning all the way through, He's always had a place for His people to come together. He tells us that we need each other. None of us are so strong that we don't need each other. And the measly three or four times that we come together a week isn't much when you look at all the time that we spend doing all the other things that we do with our lives. I want you to be strong. I know the devil's going to be out there. I know he's going to be trying to knock you down. I know that he's going to be on your back. And it's not because I'm here that you're going to be stronger. It's because as a body together, we're going to be stronger. And folks, we have no greater job to do as a body than that Christ be seen in us that we might win those around us to Christ. Nothing is more important. That's why we're here. I've asked you before, and I ask you again in closing tonight, why would God leave you here upon this earth when you and every other human being alive that's a Christian would be far better off in heaven with their glorified body, no sin to tempt them, and nothing to worry about? He's got you here that Christ might be seen in your life, that he might accomplish something in your life, and if he's not going to be able to use you, then what's the point? We spend our lives building up all these earthly things when we ought to be focusing upon our eternal treasures in heaven. Oh, we have a great responsibility, but what a great privilege to represent Jesus Christ. And I pray as a church that regardless of our numbers, how few or how many, I pray that we can be a united body, that we'll live our lives like we really believe what we say we believe. He is coming back. He's going to call us out of here. And all those that are left behind, folks, it's not a place you want your friends and family to be. And yet there's only one way out of here. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will come back. And at the end of it, he will defeat it. And we'll have a look at his kingdom and what it's going to be like. But the thing is... Do we really believe that? And are we doing everything in our powers? If you're here this evening, as far as I know, y'all look good to me. And I trust and pray that you can smile at me and say, yes, I know that I'm going to heaven. If not, 
I pray to God that the Holy Spirit would get a hold of you in such a way that you would be too afraid to walk through those doors tonight without doing something about it because of what lies ahead. If you don't know it with certainty, you ought to be trying to find that out before you leave here tonight. Christians, I trust and pray. God can give us the same compassion that Jesus Christ had when he looked on the multitudes. The Bible said he had compassion. He hurt for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, the truth is, is most of the world out there, we see all kinds of analogies in Scripture. They're blind. They're deaf. We wonder why they act the way they do. Well, I wonder more why Christians act the way they do than I do why the world acts the way it does. They're just acting like lost people are supposed to act. But what is our lives doing? May these things affect us. I don't want you to know that you're just a good Baptist. You believe all these things because that's what we've written down and said that we believe. That's what you've been told to believe. I want you to know from God's Word what you believe, why it's important to believe it. And everything that we believe is for a purpose. That's that Christ might be more real in our lives, that we might be more like Him, that it can affect our lives and the way we live and what's accomplished with our lives as individuals and as a church body together. Father, I thank you this evening. Lord, we've just so briefly skimmed over the things that will be taking place upon this earth during the seven years of tribulation. But Father, I pray that both this morning and this evening that you can use this just to let people get an idea. These things are real. This is what's going to take place. And yes, we can look and we can realize that that victory is ours in the end. But Lord, I pray that you'd let it not just be facts that we've heard about. Lord, that we study it and we know it and we believe it to such a point that it will affect the way we live our lives. It'll affect the way we think, the way we talk. It'll affect the way that we live our lives in such a way that people really can see Christ in us. Lord, I pray that you'd increase our burden and our compassion for those around us. And Lord, if we really knew that in one week's time, that was going to be it. No more chances. What would we do? To what lengths would we go to try to make sure that that person understood? Father, I pray that you would truly help us to live in such a way that, Lord, we would have that eagerness to be a witness, to be all that you would have us to. Let our joys and our peace in this life come because of the fellowship we have with you and what you're doing with our lives, not from the temporal things that the world can offer us that are all going to come to nothing anyway. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.